Did you know that McDonald's has now made scented candles that smell like a quarter pounder? Is it like a candle that smells like a quarter pounder? Or is it like you've got to burn like seven candles at once? Close. That features six distinct smells. One of them is 100% fresh beef. The second one is ketchup, (laughs) then pickle, cheese, onion, Mm. and a sesame seed bun. On their fan club website, they say you need to burn them together for maximum deliciousness. When are they going to do the candle that's like the McRib or the filet of fish? That'd be tasty. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 160 on the dial, episode 160 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That's Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. How's it going? It's going well. For those loyal listeners over the last several weeks, uh, you noticed a uh, something a little bit different last week. The first installment of the Friday Five, which is kind of an offshoot of our in-print, in-print, it's not in-print, the email e-version, the TPS report. So again, if you don't know what the TPS report is, quick weekly newsletter, you can sign up for it over on the website, touchpoint.health, aggregates really great news from around the industry delivered to your inbox each and every Monday morning. Uh, We did a little offshoot of that where you took that into audio. That's right. And we're going to feature it in this stream for the next couple of weeks, just trying it out. You're going into the week end because it comes out on Friday. Just get our perspective on a top story in that e-newsletter that we send out, the TPS report. Uh, give us feedback. Let us know what you think about it. And it's a quick five, six minutes, kind of dives a little bit deeper into one of those stories. If you haven't signed up for the TPS report, the e-newsletter, touchpoint.health, check out whether it's the Friday Five or any of the other new shows on the network. You can learn more about all of it over at touchpoint.health. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, we're going to be talking about digital health literacy. That uh, sounds like an amalgamation of a number of words that we've heard before, right, Reed? Absolutely. Digital health, digital literacy, and health literacy, and you mush them all together, and it's digital health literacy. But I think it's critically important for us to know about all of that as it pertains to the work that we do in our day-to-day. So what is digital health literacy? Well, according to the World Health Organization, it's defined as the ability to seek, find, understand, and appraise health information from electronic sources, and then be able to apply the gained knowledge from said sources to addressing or solving health problems. So again, you know, health literacy is something we've heard a lot about. Digital health literacy, not a big jump. It's the electronic sources where that knowledge is gained. But when you start to amalgamate digital health and health literacy, those concepts together, it becomes critically important to understand that there are new elements to being digital health literate, so to speak. 
We know the benefits of digital health. And when we say digital health, right, we're talking about things like telemedicine and uh, being able to manage your patient records online through your your patient portal. There's a variety of different things around that. And when we talk about health literacy, we know that also means that you have to talk at, you know, a fifth grade reading level and you have to, you know, ensure that you're not using very technical terms and understanding who your audience is to to relate to them. So the first article that we really want to dig into here is we found one um, that's called Docs Say Patient Engagement Technology Drives Education and Experience. And it comes from one of our favorite websites, patientengagementhit.com. It starts off by actually quoting a survey that was done around how physicians support the use of patient engagement technology as a means to improve patient education and communication. So what are some of the findings that they found in this survey, Reed? Well, ultimately, that, that physicians overwhelmingly support the use of the technology. It's something that it's, it's not foreign, obviously, and, and people are wanting to uh, and support the use of it. One of the stats here, three quarters of physicians link patient education and engagement tools with an improved patient experience. So again, they're tying this advanced technology through education with improved patient experience outcomes. More so, 95% said they were using some type of patient engagement tool. And then they list a couple of them, like waiting room education screens, handheld exam room tablets, or even mobile health tools that connect patients to care outside of the clinic. That's a great number, 95%. You're probably getting to a point that obviously there's, there's some industry leaders, I'm sure, that like everything is done via technology. But I think it's you're gonna be hard pressed to go to a physician's office in a in a town or or market of any size and not have at least something that fits into this category. But anyway, about three quarters of the respondents say that they would approve of ads from pharmaceutical companies appearing on their patient facing technology. Interesting. Uh, they say so long as the tool bears little financial investment and includes detailed and contextualized patient education. So. It's almost like they're fine with somebody underwriting the cost of the technology, you know, as long as it does do the education it says it does. Absolutely. It goes to the the cost of digital health adoption. Some of these tools are very expensive. Having it underwritten by pharma companies, that that's an interesting take. And I'm wondering how that's going to be affected by future legislation. The last stat that I want to pull out, it says two-thirds of physician respondents said they're also interested in voice-controlled technology, such as Google Home and Amazon Alexa devices, using those tools for documentation, answering patient questions, and also communicating with your own staff. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the communicating with own staff. An interesting kind of comment or, or point of order uh, within this particular study and, and article, they call out the fact that exam rooms were previously, like, let's let's keep that in context here for a second, were previously filled with posters and models of different health and body systems, but they're now being filled with digital engagement tools. Are they? I don't know. Again, like I said earlier, I'm sure there are physician offices that like literally everything in there is technology, touchscreen, some sort of a new and innovative way to share information. I still subscribe to the thought uh, as you think about like general physicians, internists, family medicine, that kind of thing, pediatricians offices. No, it's still posters in magazines. And I know what they're saying, the models, you know, of like the different systems within the body. Honestly, I don't see that quite as much anymore, but I still, the out of date Sports Illustrated coupled with some different posters that talk about the importance of the HPV vaccine or something like that. It seems to be more the norm. And I'm just imagining a kind of a weird world in the future where all of those posters are taken down and now you have these flashy screens that are sending in images left and right and trying to capture your attention. That to me does not seem like a good swap. I much rather have the the poster of the digestive system on the wall than an animated screen telling me about the different aspects of the digestion system. But that might be on my own preference. Two other things they say that are promises of digital health is a lot of physicians believe that implementing digital health solutions can reduce physician burnout and allow for more meaningful patient interactions. 
And many industry stakeholders have been worried about the burden technology could place on the patient-provider interactions. Physicians are beginning to really believe that this technology is going to be improving the overall patient relationship. So that's a really good promise for what these tools are. I think the burnout one is interesting. That's one to keep an eye on. That topic, obviously, even here at my day job, gets talked about quite a bit and part of our thought leadership here. And so that is that is becoming a bigger and bigger piece, not only for physicians, but caregivers. So you know, the mid-level, the nurses, et cetera, just burnout in general from clinicians, I think, is is going to be a bigger and bigger topic as we go. As we talk about the promises of digital health, naturally, Digital health literacy has to be part of the equation, which allows us to turn to another actually in-depth article. It's actually more than just an article. It's an abstract that I found on Oxford Academics website. Now we're going I'm not eyebrow. sure we are allowed to source this <laughs> or use this. And it's called Toward an Equitable Digital Public Health Era, Promoting Equity Through a Health Literacy Perspective. That is an academic title. (laughs) Well, let's hit some of the highlights here. First of all, they talk about the relationship between health technology and social inequalities in health. They begin by talking about the World Health Organization, that aforementioned organization that actually defined this term. They also identified five essential conditions for living a healthy life, and they developed a corresponding policy tool to measure countries across the world's improvement on health equity. Let's say, let's say that one more time. So this is the relationship between the innovative health technology and social inequalities in health. So I think that's interesting. So back back to what you're talking about. So they've identified these five essential conditions. The first is good quality and accessible health services. Mm-hmm. The second, income security and an appropriate fair level of social protection. Now, we've heard about that when we talk about social determinants of health, right? Income security, obviously. Decent living conditions, again, another social determinant of health. Good social and human capital. And then lastly, a decent work and employment condition. That all makes sense. I mean, those would be five essential conditions for being happy and healthy and all that kind of good stuff. But then the abstract carries forward and says that this movement towards digital health and digitization of health information and services should also consider a new condition, which Mm. is digital skills development in order to not further widen inequalities, as well as to minimize the effects of harmful digital marketing on health behavior. I mean, it just tells you where we are, right? That we're looking at digital skills as being an essential condition for being happy and and healthy in life. And potentially the ability of sophisticated digital marketers to shift health behaviors. And I think a lot about our favorite punching bag when we talk about this topic, vaccinations, right? That potentially you could sway health behavior. And now that we're living in a world where the coronavirus is now becoming a pandemic, we have to be very mindful of ensuring that our digital tools are being used in the right ways to convey the right information. They're talking here about innovative health technologies, uh, their ability to reduce or even reproduce social inequalities in health. So if you think about you know, how old someone is, their background, their economic status, things like that, even how long did they go to school? You know, what kind of degree do you have? That's all kind of part of this, right? That, their engagement with electronic health or e-health. They even say that digital skills measured by computer self-efficacy have been found to be an important determinant of online health information use in older adults. So now, as we see the World Health Organization and other entities kind of looking at the status of health and health inequality, digital skills, digital efficacy, right, is becoming an important piece of that consideration. National Economic uh, Development and Geographic Location are a third set of structural factors that they identified. A lot of times where you grow up, what you have access to, things like that, obviously you're going to, at least in early years and potentially later years, depending on where you go, you're going to have that impact. But I like the point about national economic development because that really addresses some of the, the health challenges in African 
countries that maybe do not have access to broadband. And even here in America, when we start to think about broadband access, many of these digital health tools require a very high-speed connection, yet much of America does not have broadband access. We take it for granted, you and I, we have access to broadband, but there are some people that do not have access to those tools. And so how are they going to do their telemedicine consults? How are they going to access their health system from afar? Well, that kind of leads into another point that they talk about here, which is the ability for personalized, I think that's the important part, personalized health technologies, allowing to empower consumers to quantify healthy behaviors and health behaviors could advance health for all populations. One of the things they point out is that it could potentially further widen the gap or exacerbate you know, kind of the inequality in the short term because early adopters are motivated, health conscious, et cetera. So it may not be a true picture of what we're seeing there. Speaking to those things like the Fitbits and those in-home devices, they're very, very expensive. So why don't we take a brief break here and then we'll pick up where we left off because this article goes on to address some very important things, including a framework that can be used to develop those technologies to ensure equity. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. As we kind of make our way uh, through the rest of this article, and I, and I think it's going to be uh, interesting as we talk about this framework here in just a second, but one more thing that they point out is, is that individuals who are highly literate as it relates to digital health gain a more positive outcome from the information searches in terms of like self-management of healthcare needs and adoption of healthy behaviors. I don't guess that's a huge stretch, right? I mean, people right. that know what they're doing and how to look and how to participate with these new tools or better. I think about my own use read of using like a Fitbit, you know, that information, because I have the ability to kind of scrutinize that information, look to see what my active minutes are, maybe even compare that against my workout schedule, et cetera. That's great because I'm very literate and that information becomes much more meaningful. But in an era as this paper goes on to say, in an era where fake news is known to travel faster and more widely than real news and evidence-based research, those potential users, you know, they may read the you know worst possible scenario, right? They may read that taking essential oils can protect you against the flu, for example. We want to make sure that those highly literate users are using this data. Hang on a second. Oils cannot, cannot... <laughs> Okay, sorry, I'll just make a note real quick. All right. <laughs> Let's look now at this framework that they lay out. And, and this, they say, can be used to develop digital technology and assess their potential to impact or affect equity. So the first piece here is the ability to process information. To me, that can mean a couple of things. First of all, you have to understand the information. So it has mm -hmm. to come to you in a way that you can actually interpret it in the right way. Uh, there are some settings on my Fitbit or on my health apps that I just don't even tap into. And those might be important pieces of information. So secondly, it's to be able to process that information to draw insights. I think that's the important piece of this. Second one here, uh, engagement in own health. So it's important that you care about your own health. <laughs> that, yeah. that this is, but seriously though, I mean, I think some people, especially the younger you are, and I don't want to, I'm, I'm trying to generalize here, but well, I am generalizing here, but you, you feel invincible to some degree. So I mean, it's like you may work out and you may be like a fitness person, but I don't want to confuse the idea that like you being quote unquote fit or uh, working out and things like that is the same thing as being engaged in your own health. You got to have some level of uh, ownership. The next domain they say is the ability to engage actively with digital services. 
Okay, that speaks to not only the access stuff we talked about before, but not only the broadband access, but have the ability to use these tools, these digital services in a meaningful way. I think we take it for granted that many people have access to the internet on a regular basis. There are some people that do not. How do we expect them to check their health records or reschedule their appointments and those sorts of things if we don't give them the ability to actively engage with those services? You got to want to do it and have the ability to do it. The next one here is a feeling of safety or being in control. You want to feel like you're driving the process. You want to feel like you are part, if at least part of managing your care. There's nothing worse than getting access to all this information about your health, but feeling like you have no control over what to do. And suddenly you're getting bombarded with information about how bad and sick you are. And that leads to the the next framework domain, which is motivation to engage with the digital services. If you're feeling safe and in control, then you're more motivated to engage and be interactive with these tools, as opposed to if you're feeling inundated and not in control, you're just going to check out. Yeah, I have the ability to engage on Facebook. (laughs) I just don't really have the motivation to at this juncture. (laughs) So it's very similar. Great point. (laughs) Um, The next one here, having access to information systems that work. (laughs) I think that work is a key piece there. And then lastly, the last domain they, they put forward is having digital services that are suited to individual needs. So that means don't create a digital solution and give them everything, all the keys to the kingdom. You have to make it suitable to their individual needs, which brings back that point that we always talk about, Reed, which is, We need to build these solutions that are usable by the people that we're asking to use them. I even get the full printouts of my lab work and I'm like, what do I have to read here? You want to make sure that you're giving them the information they need. They should all be an infographic. (laughs) The last thing we're going to talk about here, which I think uh, this is the point in the episode that you get your pen and paper out, really as you think about you're building a new website or taxonomy, things like we've talked about historically, content strategy, whatever it is. But you found a, a cool article called Guidelines for Developing Patient Education Materials. And so this is from the American Academy of Ambulatory Care Nursing, cool organization. I think there's some interesting pieces in here of, of like, okay, well, all this stuff is fine and good, but what does that mean to me at a hospital or working at a provider's organization relative to what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis? And this gets into the health literacy part of digital health literacy, because as you're developing these tools and solutions, these principles apply across all the development of any kind of patient education materials. Let's go through them. The first one, Use visuals as much as possible that relates to the patient's problem or need. A picture tells a thousand words, right? Or And a video even more. Some people may have problems with actual reading content and contextualizing that. Visuals are a great way to present patient education information. I've been meaning to talk to you about our show notes. I need a more of a visual representation. <laughs> The second one here, uh, they say choose book, pamphlets, brochures, but really any sort of material. You you want it written in that third to fifth grade level. I think historically we've talked a lot about sixth grade. I know it's harder when you're starting to use words like electrophysiology and things like that. But anyway, the point being, don't assume, and I, you know, everybody kind of runs into this a little bit. You work in the space, and so you probably understand it more than the general public. How do we simplify this from a comprehension standpoint? And more so than just simplifying it from a comprehension perspective, you want to use short sentences or short bits of information. You don't want to give them a 45-minute tutorial about what to do after your knee replacement. You got to give it to them in short little bits in order for them to process it accordingly and give them direction on how to do that. Really focus in on what folks need to know. Uh, What's the key theme? What's the most important piece of information as you put this stuff together? So again, that's why, you know, again, like you just said, the short sentences uh, in writing at a third to fifth grade level, things like that. That's why bulleted lists work really well. You know, you're able to kind of focus in on the key takeaways and things like that. Related to that, which is interesting, I didn't think about it until I read this. They say to use visual terms, such as the terms runny nose or redness or what have you. Mm. That kind of reinforces that visual aspect of our 
experience with patient education. And then if really quickly, I'll also mention the next one is use terms that also explain measurements. So don't say if your pain is high, they suggest saying if your pain lasts more than 30 minutes or something like that. Also, uh, be very clear when someone needs to take a particular call to action. So we've seen this in recent years around when to go to the urgent care versus the ER, or if it's you know, flu versus cold, but clearly list when the patient needs to call a doctor, what phone number to call, you know, all that kind of stuff. Along those same lines, the next one here, focus on actions that people should take using familiar words. Much like the runny nose and redness piece, you know, people, when they hear or see certain words, are going to internalize that. And so if you can make the words familiar, they're more likely to know when to take that action. And continuing down, down this theme of making it sure it's very understandable, they say use plain language, define any terms that are difficult to understand. So the electrophysiology example, don't shy away from using that term. But definitely explain it in regular language so people understand what that means. One other kind of pro tip they have, they suggest having patient or family members teach back the information to you to ensure understanding. Another one here, and we're getting towards the end, but uh, be aware of geography, ultimately. So like languages, customs, values, etc. Certainly you want to be sensitive, uh, culturally sensitive, but also uh, you want it to make sense. So this is everything from, you know, there's a hospital I work with that uh, has a high Spanish speaking population. And you know what? They don't call people by their first name. And so when you respond to them online or you're creating information for them, they have the more formal, you know, Mr. Or Mrs. type scenario versus saying, Dan, you need to call this person or whatever. Yeah. So just kind of understanding contextually the best way to have that information uh, resonate with them. I think that's really important. Uh, they also indicate here to find an advocate for the person with low literacy to ensure that that person understands. And a lot of times we see that in the case of having a translator that maybe speaks their native language or uh, someone that could be a family member that could be there that's more present and able to take the information. Because when you're being discharged from a hospital setting, you may not be of a full mindset to grasp all the discharge instructions. Those are good tips around health literacy, right? Yeah, super practical as you think about, you know, how are people going to take, synthesize, use what you create? And that could be in the digital space. It could be offline for that matter. But really, as you think about the digital space around applications, around web, and how you're pushing information and connecting with people online. Well, and that leads us nicely to the interview we're going to have with uh, Megan Necrebecki, who's the founder of the Health Cube. And she's going to talk a little bit about the use of video in patient education, and in fact, the use of video throughout the entire digital patient journey right after this break. All right, welcome back to the SEX section of the podcast. And today I am here in a local coffee shop in the Twin Cities talking with someone that's not from the Twin Cities. Well, I guess you were originally. I was originally, yeah. But uh, you actually are from, you're, you find yourself in the LA area right now, yeah, is that right? I didn't and that's you. Megan. Um, Megan, I, I deliberately did not pronounce your last name because it's a little bit long, um, and I want to make sure it's said right. So, it's a tricky one. <laughs> yeah, why don't you introduce yourself to the people on the yeah. show? Hi, everyone. My name is Megan Necrobecki. I know it's a tricky last name. Um, originally from Minnesota, so that's why I'm here with Chris, um, but now live in Los Angeles. So, Megan, you and I got to know each other. I think we first connected over somehow over LinkedIn, and we mm -hmm. started having a conversation. Then we hopped on the phone a couple of times, and now we finally get to see each other in person. We just had a really good conversation over a, a cup of coffee, and I said to you, let's pull out the microphone, let's actually capture some of this, because I think it might be interesting to people. Yeah. Before we jump into the topic, though, at hand, let's tell little people a little bit about you, your background, and how you got to where you're at. Yeah, okay, sure. So I originally was uh, pre-medicine, so I wanted to become a physician, and I actually, I went to undergrad at University of Wisconsin and then went straight to my grad program at Johns Hopkins and did a Master's of Science in Public Health. And when I was there, the Affordable Care Act was getting passed, I was taking a lot of health policy and management courses and really learning about how we have quite a broken system on our hands here in the U.S. And so decided to not go into medical school and actually work on fixing the system. So 
had quite a few different positions out east. A lot of my sort of bread and butter background is around how we use data and analytics in order to change the way we operate in healthcare. And so worked for a carrier, a startup, I did consulting, and then ultimately was recruited out to LA to work for the UCLA Health System and manage their value-based care and population health efforts there. Um, but this entire time, really saw an opportunity to better empower and engage patients uh, with information on how to navigate their healthcare episodes because I saw that the general public really does not understand how healthcare works. And once you're on the ground inside a health system, you actually see how patients are making bad decisions that ultimately lead to higher costs and worse health outcomes. Meanwhile, your clinicians and staff are burnt out and don't have the time and tools. And so being in Los Angeles, really saw how the entertainment industry and other industries were really using recorded video in a very interesting, uh, impactful way and realized that this is a tool that we should be using much heavier inside of the healthcare system. Which leads us naturally to the topic we're going to talk about, yes. which is using video mm -hmm. as part of the care pathway, so to speak, or yep. maybe we even call it the customer journey, the patient journey, mm -hmm. uh, the, digital right? journey. the digital care journey. I love it. I love it. And that's kind of the genesis of the idea behind your new business that you're starting or that you're yep. working on. Yep. And we'll get into that in a second, though. But so you mentioned that the influences around uh, the entertainment industry. But I mean, looking at all the digital tools that we've all been using over the last, I don't know, 10 years, right? Yeah. Uh, more and more of it's going towards video. Is that right? Is that what you're finding? Oh, 100%. Yeah. And so there's even stats out there that say, as of 2020, about 80% of online content is video, right? And we all think about YouTube and Netflix and all these different resources that we go to. They're video. No one wants to be reading packets of paper anymore. And especially in the healthcare industry, a lot of it is either pieces of paper or verbal communication, but that's not how anyone wants to receive information. And so video is the future. So you're saying that all of that big packet of information that they send you off with when you're discharged from the health, from the hospital or whatever, that people don't read that? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> do you think they do, Chris? Well, I, I don't read it at all. Not at all. But so, um, so obviously video is a natural thing. And I think yeah. that, you know, the technology is changing to such a point that anybody can actually access online video, right? Oh, yeah, 100%. It's so easy, right? Everyone's going. And, and most of the folks that are going to healthcare systems, they're Googling regardless, right? And so if you want them Googling at all, you want them finding your information and your video content and building a relationship with your brand and your institution and showing that they have support as they're navigating their healthcare, especially with your institution. Right, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think it's clear, right, that the consumer is starting to embrace video a yeah. lot more, yeah. um, that the technology is there now for all of us to kind of utilize. Yeah. And um, and moreover, I think the health system is starting, the health systems are starting to embrace this. Is that fair to say? or? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because health systems obviously are in different spaces depending mm -hmm. on where they are. And so I would say a lot of the more progressive organizations are incorporating video, right? They're actually, a lot of them are getting in-house production because they there's not enough vendors in the space, right? And so this is exactly why we're here. Um, but they are either getting in-house production or they're figuring it out. And then there's other health systems that are much more behind the times, right, where they really haven't been using recorded video or incorporating that into their operations at all. Now, we're talking about video that's a lot different than the standard, like, 90-second physician bio videos or the yes. virtual tours of, you know, the, the facility. Like, what type, of, what type of video content do you think that patients really are, are looking for now? Yeah, so what patients want and need is very clear, concise videos that tell them exactly what they need to know on how to navigate their episode. Because imagine you as a consumer, as a patient, you have to figure out everything on your own. And so that starts with everything from how to make an appointment and how to get in and who they should be making an appointment with to how to check their insurance and understand the medical billing side and coverage side to actually navigating and having conversations with their doctors and navigating their specific episode, whether that's a surgery or a pregnancy or chronic disease management. There is so much that a patient needs to know and understand. And right now they're really... They're at, you know, the will of the health system giving them packets of paper. <laughs> right, right. And, and intermittently giving them packs of packets of paper, too. Mm -hmm. Right? Or maybe they can go online and start to find this stuff on the, on the website. But even that can be a little bit, you know, 
um, dangerous, if you will. <laughs> yeah. But you know, when you talk about it, as I think about that patient care journey, as we're calling it, right? Yep. That um, that kind of spans over many different entities too, right? It's not just the health system. Mm-hmm. It could be your provider. It could be your physician. Uh, it could be your payer. Yep. It could be your health system. There's a lot of people playing in this space. Mm-hmm. Is, is that is is that a fair assessment of the challenge here? Yeah, well, and so that's exactly what's tricky for the consumer is that they have to navigate across everything. And so I think the more that we can create video content that is comprehensive of the consumer's situation and helping them navigate across insurance and the medical providers, that's really what patients need and want and not just this, um, how you were speaking to videos that are, you know, physician bio, which is great, um, but that serves a different purpose than what the consumer needs, especially when you want to improve the patient experience, reduce systemic costs as we move into value-based care, and improve the health outcomes of the patients, because that's what's going to keep them coming back to your organization, that's what's going to get them recommending their friends and family to your organization, is that you have resources in place to help them get what they want, which is a better experience and outcome. Right, and in a in a format that they actually appreciate, right, or enjoy, or can understand. Yep, exactly. And I think is this a good time for us to pivot a little bit to the TED Talk that you just recently gave? Sure. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So I actually just gave a TED Talk at it was called TEDx Delthorne Women, uh, just south of Los Angeles. And it was an amazing opportunity to speak in front of an audience about our broken healthcare system and what the healthcare system of the future really will look like. And so I took an opportunity to tell a few patient stories about how complex the healthcare system is and what it's like to navigate across insurance and the providers. Um, but really talked about the digital care journey and how we need to provide care both now and in the future and really how recorded video plays a role. So. I talk about this funnel of layers and how individuals will receive care in the future. And I firmly believe that we're going to totally flip healthcare on, on its head, right? So we're going to start with recorded video. That's how we will get information to patients. And even there's a lot of things there where right now we see them as care that's provided by an individual. But a lot of that information is redundant conversations that you can standardize and automate through video, and then you can test knowledge of the patient's understanding of so many opportunities. Can you give to, me some examples of what that means? Yeah, of course. So think of, so let's say an example of navigating a healthcare episode would be pregnancy navigation, right? And so there's tons of information that you know, either the OB or midwife or what have you, that they need to have this redundant conversation over and over to educate the women on, you know, epidurals, the risks and benefits, episiotomies, et cetera. There's so many different concepts that if you're going through your first time pregnancy, or maybe you had a C-section, but you want to be back, there's so much sure. that they need to know and understand. And right now they're left Googling or you know, paper, but instead of putting the work on the OB or the midwife or the nurse, you can actually standardize it and automate it through the videos, get it in front of the patients, they can watch it at their own pace and place, they can rewatch with loved ones. And so there's such an opportunity to get information sure. in that format that they want that then helps them make have better conversations, make more educated decisions. And that's just one example. Think about everything I mean, surgeries, chronic disease management. And then there's such an opportunity, even from the physical health and mental health improvement stage, that you can be conveying information that helps patients better manage their health through recorded video, and you don't necessarily have to have these reductive conversations, or maybe you're not having them because you don't have the time. So that's the top layer, right? That's the, mm-hmm. the top layer is recorded video. Yeah. So all, sometimes even the first touch point they might have with their care pathway, right? Yeah, exactly. And then what's the layer below that? Next one's live video, yeah. so oh. telehealth. Right? Telehealth. And so, and that's what's nice to see is that the healthcare providers are now starting to embrace telehealth mm-hmm. to a greater extent, but that's where we really need to see recorded video come in and play a role along with the telehealth, right? So that we have live video. Then I would say the next layer is care in the home, right? So there's a lot of startups that are coming out in this space. And I mean, I even saw it when I was on the ground at the health system. We saw a lot of readmissions from chronic elderly patients who couldn't even get outside the apartment or outside their home to even get into clinic and then we would get a readmission you know and so so this is almost like remote patient monitoring too right Mm -hmm. some devices where you could as from a health system or even the care team could 
check in with the, the patient while they're at their home setting? Is that what you're talking about? Yep, yep. So ways to get patients in their home would be the next layer of care. Okay. And then we actually come into the clinics and then into the hospitals. And you can imagine when we're talking about recorded video, how you can actually integrate that through all of these processes, right? So even when patients are in the hospital, you get down to that final funnel, part of the funnel, that you can be using recorded videos while the patients are sitting in the hospital bed and not otherwise you know, engaging in learning about their care or their discharge or what have you. And a lot of times, for example, case management is having redundant conversations about post-acute care and discharge, and that can all be standardized, automated through video, and then it allows your staff to have higher level conversations or be doing their own things. So I get it. I mean, I understand like how video can be used in all these different settings. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to envision, is there a health system out there that's actually embracing all of this yet? You know, I haven't seen it yet where it's fully embraced. Mm-hmm. There's definitely organizations, so I'll just give one example. For example, I spoke with MD Anderson where they did have video content on their website and we're starting to use that as a tool, had right. in-house production. You know, so there's certain organizations who they see this future and they're going that direction. Um, but I would say for the majority of health systems that I'm talking to, it's really, really underutilized as a tool. And a lot of times it's used more as a marketing tool. Yeah. That's the other thing I was thinking about is, you know, that some of this content is created by marketing. Yeah. Some of it's created by patient education. Some of it might be created by the clinical team themselves. Yeah. And you're talking about like sort of this holistic view of video mm-hmm. across the whole paradigm of care. Yeah. Um, that could be pretty challenging for us. Yeah. And well, and you know what's so interesting about healthcare systems is that there is this. Uh, challenge, I I joke that it's an identity crisis of who owns this kind of arm of patient education, right? Because it's patient education that is also a marketing tool and also an operational tool. And so it's really every single different health health system is different as to gaining buy-in and taking who's leading leading this, who's taking ownership, because you do have to gain buy-in across, you know, marketing plays a role and operations plays an important role, patient experience plays an important role, and so every organization is going to be different in who owns recorded video and telephone and these different components. At every stage of that journey. Because again, that's yeah. what we're talking about—is every stage of the journey here. Yeah, exactly. And if we if we don't, um, you know, if it, it's it's odd to think about, we almost want to have someone that's like chief of the patient, you know, like or, <laughs> yeah. or, or like owns the whole the patient journey. Yeah. But you know, I, and Reed and I have talked about this a lot on our show about there is no one person that is really the owner of the patient. Yeah. Right. No, there's we not. all are. Yep. Exactly. But we have a hard time because of the silo nature of our organizations mm-hmm. to make that happen. Yep. Is that fair to say? Oh, completely fair. Yeah. So, so I mean, how do you see us getting there? What's the what's the path to get there? Yeah, you know, I think, like I said, I think organizations have to come to terms with sort of who would own this side of it. And so um, I think a lot of times I see that the operations arm um, is really what's the most important because in the end, when it comes to using recorded video, the goal is not to have the videos and have a link and just hope that patients will somehow find the videos and access the videos. I think if we do a good job from a content marketing standpoint, that is a very important role. But really, and this is sort of my bread and butter that I discussed before, is you know change management and operations improvement, getting the, the video in as a tool that the clinicians and staff really utilize and endorse, that's huge in getting it in front of the patients and having both the clinicians and staff benefit as well as the patients. You have to really build it into their operations. Yeah, because now suddenly we have more audiences, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just the patient, it's also the staff and the and oh geez. Yeah. My mind is boggling. I mean I can see it seems like it's a very clear future forward path. Mm-hmm. But getting there it seems a little bit of, a little bit of a challenge. So how do you see like where where if you, if a hospital someone listening in may want to start down this path, mm-hmm. where would you recommend they start? What what would be a good way for them to get start walking down this path? Yeah, I think so the way that I would recommend this is we don't want to bite off more than we can chew, right? So it's starting with a pilot. So we would choose an area that's a high priority for the institution. So whether that's, you know, surgeries or what have you, choose a specific area or whether it's to improve outcomes or experience. And then what we want to do is so we choose the pilot area, pilot population. We're going to choose where we want to see the ROI. What are the metrics? Is it, in, is it improving patient experience? Is it outcomes? Is it cost reduction if it's a value-based care population? 
then we'll actually implement around that. So we'll choose a specific content area, build out the video content, and then with that, we have to, like I said, we have to build out a plan for operations and marketing, for our ability to analyze that data, and then we'll actually implement, and then we'll have to PDSA as we see fit, and then once we feel really good, we've seen our ROI there, then we can either expand the content across the organization, or we can, if we've already done that, then we can go on to our next content area. So you don't want to just go all in and start trying to use video across the organization, but you want to start small and then we can go from there. And that's kind of why you built this company now that you're, you're leading, right? Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. Yes, so healthcare transformation, our goal is to support organizations in this transition to the future of healthcare and the use of video as a tool. Um, we actually also started our own platform because uh, we saw the need for consumers and consumers are asking for this information. So our platform is called the Healthcare Cube. Um, and so that is where we drip our own content in order for consumers to be able to go on and watch these videos on how to navigate different healthcare situations. There's a lot of stuff here. And you and your TED talk, I'm sure we just scratched the surface on it. Is there anything else from that that you wanna you wanna tease? In the TED talk I talk through the so, you know, starting with what the current US healthcare system looks like, right? So I talk through those kind of major issues and then talk through what are the three main things that we need to do um, as a as a country, as healthcare professionals, as consumers and what we need to demand. And so you'll have to watch watch the oh. TED talk and learn more. Well well like I said, we'll link to that in the show notes. I think it's going to be fascinating. Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to it. I'll jump online. It's almost like we're talking in person here. Yeah. And in fact, you know, Megan, you don't always have to come out to Minnesota now because apparently I hear video is a thing. We can start to now maybe video online and, and yeah, exactly. chat with one another. You can watch my video. We can video. Exactly. Video. Exactly. We'll, we'll incorporate all those levels. Megan, this is really fascinating, really interesting, and a really great perspective on the future. People listening in, if they want to learn a little bit more about you, what's the way they can get a hold of you online? Yeah, so definitely following me and connecting on LinkedIn is a great way. So I'm sure they'll have to look up how to spell my last name. <laughs> well, we'll put the link to your LinkedIn on the show okay, notes perfect. for sure. Yeah. Um, and then our website is caretransformation.net. And then the website for our consumer platform is thehealthcarecube.com. Awesome. Well, Megan, thanks so much for your time today. It's been great. Thanks for having me, Chris. You're welcome. Come out to Minnesota again. Oh, yeah, I'll be back. <laughs> awesome. Special thanks again to uh, Megan at The Health Cube for coming on, talking about the role of video in the digital patient journey. I think that's really interesting and important and, of course, speaks to a lot of the things that we talked about in the episode, specifically around creating educational materials like making it visual. Appreciate her and her spending her time with us uh, today. So as we kind of wrap up today's episode, uh, certainly appreciate the support. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether that be over on iTunes or streaming on Spotify. Uh, we certainly appreciate the support. We got a couple of things coming up: South by Southwest, which is uh, kind of that spring break time frame, and then um, the Forum for Healthcare Strategist Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada coming up April 5 through 7. So again, links to all of that in the show notes, as well as on the weekly TPS report. Again, if you haven't signed up for the TPS reports, you can do that over on the website as well. Yeah, here we go. Some recommendations. Okay, Reed, I got a really good one for you here. Do you remember back in, I guess it was the 80s, 90s, uh, early 2000s when McDonald's ran the Monopoly game? Oh, yeah, for sure. You had the little peel-off things like on your fries or uh, or your candle. No, I'm just kidding. Well, <laughs> that's that's nowadays. You like that? See what I did it, there? That was, was good. The, that yeah. was good. Um, but did you know that between the years of 1989 and 2001, there was a scam and there were no legitimate winners of any major prizes in the McDonald's Monopoly game? Absolutely nobody won a million dollars. Nobody won $25,000 or up, anything like that. You know, that's interesting because if you think about that time frame, that's pre, pre-internet through not much of an internet. And so there's really no way to share the fact that like no one, law, no one won, right? Like it's, it's easier to hide, I guess. That's exactly right. And there is a documentary streaming right now on HBO. It's a six-part documentary series. 
As of recording time, there's only four episodes that have been released. There are a couple more coming. By the way, it has a supplementary podcast. It's called McMillions. It's a documentary about the true story of how $24 million were stolen from McDonald's Monopoly game. And it gets into how the FBI uncovered it through an anonymous tip. Basically, it unfolds the whole story around how this all occurred. And every episode of this uh, documentary read, it's just crazy. At the end of each episode, they throw in a big twist, or as our friend Jason Pratt calls it, a mick twist at the end of every episode. <laughs> <laughs> just leads you on to like, I cannot wait to read to see the next episode. And then the podcast, the Supplementary Podcast, actually goes deeper and, and actually shares more of the interviews they have. But some of the people that they've interviewed are a woman who was a mafia wife, to a person heavily involved and she is one of those persons that you want to just have a bottle of wine with and just talk to her because she's got stories about what it's like to be married into the mafia uh and then all the way into some people that posed as winners and kind of were duped by this organized crime approach to actually claim million dollar winnings from mcdonald's and then how they actually lost money by doing so sounds amazing it's unbelievable. So I'm going to recommend it. McMillions streaming on HBO. I even think they have the first episode you can watch for free on their website. Oh, nice. Okay. Very cool. Definitely take a look. Uh, I'm going to recommend something a little bit different. Uh, it's just kind of dawned on me over the last couple of weeks, but you know, you find yourself like in meetings or whatever it is and you, you got the people, I'm one of them that's always drawing something in the margins of your paper, you know, or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. I actually picked this up off the floor at our house a while back because uh, someone left it there and I looked at it for a second. I thought, you know, I'm just going to take that to the office. I haven't heard much of these in recent years, but I'm enjoying it. It's a fidget spinner. Remember Uh-oh. fidget spinners? Uh-oh. What are those, about two years ago? Probably something like that. I assume you can still buy them. I have no idea. They were huge. They were all the rage. My kids had to have them, you know, et cetera. Well, now I just, I have one here on my desk and uh, like while I'm on conference calls or whatever. I don't know. I like fidget spinners. So you should have one. Yep. There you go. Okay. So um, a fidget spinner while you're watching about how McDonald's was scammed of millions of dollars. It's going to be amazing. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Maybe you can light your candles in the background. (laughs) exactly well thanks again for tuning in telling a friend and being a partner with us in this journey on the podcast we certainly appreciate it again if you'd like to learn more about this show or other ones like it you can visit us online at touchpoint.health chris boyer i'm reed smith and we'll see you next time This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.